Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to Leading Better and Growing Faster with Joe and TJ. I'm Joe. And I'm TJ. And we are The Schoolhouse 302. Where you can find blog posts, podcasts with expert guests, curated book recommendations, and our genius thoughts. Always on a topic that is proven to help you lead better and grow faster. If you want to support the show, all you have to do is hit us with a like, a share, a follow, or a comment. On our site or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you access our material. Again, thanks for listening and for leading better and growing faster with us. Here we go with another great episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leading Better and Growing Faster podcast with Joe and TJ. I'm Joe, and we are here with our guest, Miriam Plotinsky. Thank you for being on the show, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We are totally stoked for this interview, really because we look forward to you giving insight on how school leaders can ultimately be more effective Um, which they all want to be. So we're excited about that. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Miriam? Sure thing, Joe. Miriam Plotinsky is an instructional specialist with Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland, where she has taught and led for more than 20 years. She's the author of Teach More, Hover Less, Lead Like a Teacher, which we're going to talk about today, and Writing Their Future Selves, all Norton and Company books. She's also a national board certified teacher and a certified administrator. So Miriam, we wanna dig into your book, Lead Like a Teacher, How to Elevate Expertise in Your School. Please let's first start with, why did you write this book and what difference do you think it can make for school leaders? What wound up happening, the way that I got got to this particular book, it was it was sort of accidental the way a lot of things are. I had uh, a lot of opportunity to observe leadership teams in action. And one thing that I noticed as I went from school to school or district to district is that the schools that seemed to have it the most together um, with the happiest and most functional climates or cultures, when they were having conversations about teaching and learning, it wasn't happening in closed conference rooms. Uh, I saw teachers at the table, whereas in a higher number of schools in which they were really struggling to make changes, there weren't really those voices in the room at all. And I was wondering at the time, because I have a very strong instructional focus, if you're wondering what to teach people or what they need to learn or what the school needs to work on, why would these voices not be heard? And I also realized at the time, because I was talking to a lot of leaders, that there were reasons that they didn't necessarily want to have these voices at the table. And so this idea started a form for this book, uh, which I call the empathy gap. Essentially, it's about how nobody understands anybody else. You know, as as leaders, people think that you sit in an office all day and you have all this time to yourself and it looks really cushy from a distance. And that's not what it is at all. You know, first of all, you're rarely in that office. You have no time to yourself and you spend a ton of time putting out fires and wishing you could be in classrooms more. And then for teachers, you know, there's this conception of stuck in their classroom, just want to do things the same way they've always done them, don't necessarily know how to do this, don't have the background knowledge. So there are these these stories that form, because one thing I always say is that if you don't know the story, you're going to create one and it will be the wrong one. 
So this book was really born out of that spirit of how do we close that empathy gap? How do we help these two groups really reach one another a lot more? And I decided to explore that through both what I call micro focus and a macro, which is if you think about that old thing of, you know, do you see the forest for the trees? Teachers, generally speaking, tend to be details oriented within the microcosms of their classrooms or maybe their teams, whereas administrators can see the big picture of the whole school. So the whole purpose of the book is how do you bring these things together and how do you pull the teacher perspective in to both those big and small areas? And Miriam, you're pretty well versed as a school leader chairperson. And I, if you wouldn't mind, can we dig into that a little bit? Because I think some of what I, you know, read about your early work and a lot of your early experiences, um, did you have the ability to have that voice when you were in that role? So I know you're seeing this now as an instructional leader, heavy instructional focus, but I am curious, when you were in that role, were you given the opportunity to have that voice? And how much of that do you see now um, should have been a part of your experience? So in most cases, no, I didn't have that experience. Um, and I think I probably went through a lot of what most teachers and then emerging leaders go through, which is, well, uh, my voice doesn't really matter. Whatever they've decided to do, whoever they are, it's already a foregone conclusion. Why are you even giving me the survey? Why are you even asking for my opinion if it's not genuine? So that was the majority, the bulk of, of what I experienced. But I did have a couple of really important leaders on that journey who didn't operate that way. And I remember one of them said to me at one point, because I, I had a job in which everybody at the table had an equal voice. And she said to me, nobody is important. You know, we all sort of walk around with this professional veneer and we have these identities, but none of us really matters. It's, it's what we know that's going to drive the success or failure of whatever we're doing. So it's not the job description that we come with, it's, it's the knowledge and the experiences. So that, that was inspirational and that was different. And, and she ran her school and her later, um, she supervised many schools, um, that way where she would essentially be very approachable, very accessible. It's not often like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't the norm. I, I wonder why, why from your perspective, do you think that is that, that that's not normal? Um, you think that's a confidence thing? You think it's a training thing? I mean, why do you think that that type of um, leadership is absent and necessary to learn maybe rather than more common a lot of the time teachers and leaders and probably anybody in any job position do the same thing which is we learn from the people that we are around so you know for example for teachers the most common form of professional development is the teacher next door or down the hall or, or what have you and i think it's the same for leaders whoever we observed whoever trained us that's the pathway we're going to follow for better or worse um, you know, how much people really learn about the jobs they're supposed to do or how much those jobs can be defined, it really is, is so variable. And, you know, another thing is that the time and capacity it takes to undergo something a little bit more functional, for lack of a better word. You know, when, when, when the pandemic happened, everyone was thinking, great, we're finally going to break through the status quo and we're going to do something different. And that's not what happened because when you don't have the human resources to achieve something new, and also when you're afraid of 
shaking things up because you know the devil you know is probably at least you know what you're dealing with um that might be more attractive so there are all sorts of reasons why it is and another thing is you know especially when you get promoted there's this i think it's a cultural expectation of you're now here for a reason you're the authority you have to answer the questions you know suddenly a lot of things change someone's wardrobe gets a whole lot different they start behaving differently um, especially newer leaders, they're not really quite sure how to make that distinction. How do I, how do I walk that line? And again, if you don't have the right people along with you, supporting you, it, it can be a really shaky journey. And Miriam, you talk about this um, in your book, and I totally agree. A lot of times the things that we do, we just learn firsthand through experience, whether we like it or not. Um, that's what we're exposed to and what we adopt. But you do write specifically about bridging that gap from the front office and the classroom. Can you break that down for us a little bit? So, so say the leadership isn't where it should be, and they want it to be there. They want to give teachers that voice to hit on exactly what you started with, that it's high functioning, teachers have a voice, it's what's happening um, in, in their building just as much. So how do you bridge that gap? How do you start forging that relationship? So it's, it's definitely complex work, but I think the easiest thing to do, just the first thing, is to become more visible. Uh, a lot of the time, that whole front office division, people might not be in that office, but that's where they're perceived to be because no one knows where they are or what they're doing. And, you know, administrators are called all over the place, including areas outside the building. So when you can be, you know, for example, there are a lot of trends like have a have a rolling desk that you sort of stand in the hallway so people can see you. Um, there are other things that people do that are really effective, like, for example, time permitting, take one morning a week and sit in the teacher team room. Take your laptop, take your work, just sit in there. Don't make a big deal. Don't start opening conversations or making people talk to you. If you do it often enough, they'll get used to having you there and it won't be scary anymore. And you know, you might get a lot of questions and you might not want to answer all the questions, but it will improve things over time. So just, just be there because I can't, especially I think it's more common in secondary schools. It's really hard to find your administrator sometimes or even to access or to make appointments. So you got to be more accessible you have to be more viewable and then you know as for getting into classrooms which is another thing you don't know what's happening in your building if you don't watch instruction on a regular basis i mean it's it's kind of an obvious thing how do you know if you're supposed to do this training on differentiation or if your school's focus should be you know pick an instructional strategy if you don't know who can do it already and who is having a hard time doing it now understandably when you're scheduled to go into classrooms, people start fighting in the cafeteria or, you know, a parent shows up in the front office without an appointment screaming or whatever might happen. So trying to establish as many structures as possible so that you can fulfill what you need to, to understand what's happening with teaching and learning. That's really important. I talked to, um, I did an article a few years ago for Edutopia about principals who teach. And I interviewed a principal at an elementary school and she essentially has her school structured so that she teaches for two classes a day. She has like an elementary school class full of kids and it's like two hours a day she's with them. And all of her teacher interns who are doing apprenticeships and administration, anybody who's interested in taking on leadership, she's got them mobilized 
to do things within legal limits. Obviously, there are certain things. But for the most part, she can fulfill that obligation because she's really thoughtfully planned it. So it's doing things like that so you can understand more about the people that you work with. And that also helps to close that, that empathy gap. Mir, I, I, I want to go back to the book, if you don't mind. Um, the structure of the book really matters. And if you could say, I think you, you briefly mentioned, but you could say a little bit more about what you your thoughts on the micro versus the macro and the blending of those two and kind of what you want readers to take away from that. Our, our leaders love, they love books, um, number one, but they, they like the practicality of a book and the way that it unfolds for learning. How does that interface with the, the reader? So first of all, for both sections of the book, um, they're filled. Um, I, I get in trouble with my publishers because I tend to fill them with figures and tables and strategies that you can use right away. So the idea is that no matter where you find yourself in the book, you flip around, you find a strategy that works and you use it, you try it and see how it works for your practice. In terms of the actual structure, the first four chapters are really those details oriented chapters, um, which are, you know, hiring, instructional coaching, observation and evaluation, things that really involve instruction more directly and how you set your school up to have the right people with kids in classrooms. And those chapters are important because if you can't get the instruction where it needs to be, then the rest of the school doesn't follow. Everything just sort of starts with, with the quality of what's happening with, with that teaching. And then we move into some more, um, you know, there, there are principles of leadership, like how you actively listen, how you prevent fires, how you set up structures or communicate. And, and the idea is that in each of these areas, whether they are details oriented, that micro piece, or whether they're broader, like that macro piece, every single chapter is, is, is sharing ideas for how teachers can become involved in this. How do you get that voice in there? Even where teachers don't see their voice, where does it exist? So when it comes to how you listen to people, how can you even use instructional strategies? Like my favorite strategies of all time are wait time one and wait time two, which we are used to using in classrooms. You know, wait time one is we ask a question, we're supposed to wait five full seconds before anybody says anything. Because if we jump in too soon to, you know, rescue them, which is not really rescuing, we're cutting them off. And most people wait an average of 0.5 seconds, not five, and that's a big difference. And then wait time too is if, you know, once someone says something, you wait another five seconds to give them an opportunity to elaborate or to let someone else jump in. You can use those same strategies as a leader in a meeting. And you will, by talking less, she said talking a lot, um, by talking less, you will learn more about the people around you. So it really does have this way to not just figure out how to incorporate the teacher perspective in all these different chapters, but also, if you're a teacher who's reading this thinking, I want to be a leader, it also speaks the same language. So it brings a lot of common terms and vocabulary together in both of these realms of teaching and leading. Thank you, Miriam. Um, switching gears a little bit and getting into some of our, you know, <clears throat> leadership questions and kind of who you may follow, who you may go for inspiration. Um, is there a person or group that you either follow for knowledge or inspiration and where could we find them? Uh, so a lot of groups, <laughs> um, I think, you know, and I, I, I know that the Twitter is controversial right now and I'm not saying that's a group, but I found most of my, my education people on, I guess, edu Twitter, 
um, just because there's so, there's so much knowledge on there and then you can cut out the noise. So um, Teachers Going Gradeless is an organization made up of both teachers and leaders. And it's really focused on how do we really help students and leaders understand what everyone needs to know by focusing not on grades, and we understand a lot of school systems can't go gradeless, but how can we really take up some of those philosophies and ideas? That's a really cool organization. Um, I've always been a big Edutopia fan. I'm a contributing writer a lot of the time for them because they're focused on action and not on ideas. I think when people read books or articles, they want ideas to implement right away. They don't wanna wait and think about theoretically what this could look like, so love that. Um, and I feel very similarly about ASDD. They're actually publishing my fourth book, which I just started writing a couple months ago, but they have all kinds of, of really good strategies and ideas and, and constant constant food for thought. And I know these are, are, are pretty well organizations, um, but there's a reason for that. They really um, provide a lot of, of answers and actually um, Solution Tree, as they are named, Solutions, we like that. So I'm always looking for for specifics. And I think that's what I gravitate toward with, with who I follow and, and who I listen to and who I talk to. And then I also find individual people along the way. Like for example, um, there are two forwards in this book and one of them is written by Maya Daughtery. She is a director of literacy at NWEA and they do the map testing and all that. Um, and she just knows so much about how to access literacy. She's been an instructional specialist. She's been a director and a leader. And so just talking to her, is something and she she is very avid in, in posting she blogs she writes articles and, and thoughts as well so there are also just a lot of really cool people that you run into who, who have great ideas that's great thank you and we'll we'll link to all that in the show notes i was um taking some notes on teachers going gradeless edutopio ascd solution tree congratulations on the fourth book with ascd that's a big deal so Hopefully you. you'll be willing to come on the show and talk about that when it when it comes out. Um, I'm very excited. Thank you. Yeah. And we also know that, you know, starting a book is a huge undertaking and even finishing one uh, when you go into production is, is a huge lift. So um, this is something from your perspective that that our listeners love to dig into in terms of actionable items. What's one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? Just generally, or? You can go in any direction you want. Just something general or something that you do specifically that people should try to do that is just going to make a difference for their, for their mindset, for their health, for whatever direction you want to take it. I'm a big fan of the 10-minute reset. So this is something I do every day. Lunchtime's a good marker. I know that sometimes lunch doesn't happen, so you need to kind of skew it later, but essentially 10 minutes each day to do something I love. And it's something very simple. So for me, it's part of a crossword puzzle. If it's a nice day and there are no wildfires, we get to go outside, um, you know, anything like that, just to get a reset, because otherwise, especially in the job that we're in, you get you get kind of trapped in cinder block. You know, you're looking around you, sometimes there are windows, the world outside disappears and everything becomes very, very serious. And I'm not saying it's not, but you need to have those 10 minutes. And I'm not saying 10 minutes is like ideal. If you can take more than 10 minutes, if you can take 20, great. But I feel like 10 minutes is, is kind of what everyone can commit to. Um, and then, you know, from there, 
you get a little bit of serenity, just like a tiny bit. And Miriam, do you do that during, do you try to do that also just during the day, get up from your desk if you're not out in buildings or are you referring more to at night? Just, just, I hate to get that specific, but I kind of geek out on that stuff a little bit on, on what are really just, what does it look like in practical terms? Is this like during the day you'll get up? I mean, it's probably hard to do a crossword puzzle at your desk and people not judge you, um, but <laughs> But I mean, getting up and going for the walk and stuff, that is healthy. You know, I actually just put a, a I think it was a tweet last night or a couple of days ago on movement. Just remember to get in a little movement as we enter the summer. I mean, so I'm not a night person. I think this is like years and years of getting up, at, you know, before before dawn broke to, to be at work. Um, so I, I definitely a middle of day thing. And, you know, if I'm traveling at a school, I'll walk around the neighborhood. Or I'll walk around the school, like, you know, or I'll find the track if they're like, who's the, who's the strange woman on the track walking around. Um, and, you know, when I, if, when I was at one school, it was the same thing. Just go outside, sit, stare at the cars, go by, and, oh, there's a world. Look at that. Uh, sunshine, vitamin D, wear your sunscreen, all that. And the crossword puzzle, I, you know, I definitely think people would judge me if I did it in my office. But if I am lucky enough to, there are picnic tables outside my office. So during lunch, I take, you know, my lunch and I take my crossword puzzle. And that looks, that looks kind of normal to do that for a few minutes. And I'm doing it while I'm eating. So I wasn't going to, I don't believe in working through lunch unless I have to. Like, I understand that sometimes I have to. A lot of times I have to. But ideologically, I don't like that. Because it's, again, there's no break. You're not giving yourself a break. I see people putting comments on Google Docs and slides at like one in the morning or doing things like that. And I worry about burnout because do you really have to? And people will say, oh, I have to, I have so much work, but I wonder. Yeah, I wonder as well. Um, and just for those listeners and, and you know, I, I heard this just years and years ago and I agree, I think it's a very smart technique. And um, um, I heard it as the Pomodoro technique. You know, you just kind of take those breaks in between and, and your mind does reset. It does rejuvenate. You think by, you know, gritting your teeth and gritting out the work, it's more productive, but actually it's not. Taking that little walk around, resetting it is huge. I actually teach this to teachers. Um, I teach teachers at night. And uh, on the first day of class, I take a glass of water and I have a pitcher that has too much water in it. And I, like I pour and I get very dramatic because I do it over a computer. And, you know, what happens if I keep on pouring? And they're like, well, it'll, it'll it's going to overflow. And so we talk about the brain to body connection. And there have been all these research studies, like, for example, for every 30 minutes of sitting and learning something, you need at least 90 seconds of movement. Or if you've been lectured to for 10 minutes, you need two minutes of processing. All humans need this, not just children. For children, you probably want to be a little more liberal. But the idea is that we don't function when we try to go all the way through. Yeah, it's excellent points. Miriam, what's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? Oh, my goodness. Um, so, again, like dreams. Um, I try to pick up, I read an article recently in the New York Times that we're not actually supposed to get really, really good at most of what we do, that we get more joy and fulfillment out of just kind of dabbling. So I've dabbled in a lot of things. I've dabbled, like I learned how to tap dance one summer and I learned how to play the guitar one summer. And, you know, I think that next I want to play more. I've, I've been reading this book called Save the Cat Writes a Novel. It's about like how you write really good stories. And I just want to, 
dig into that and learn how to write better fiction. Because I, I, I'm not saying I, I've got fi nonfiction figured out, but I do a lot of that. And so I just want to try, try that or maybe being funny. I'd like to work on being funny. That is funny. Thank you. I'm glad you find that amusing. It's probably the funniest <laughs> thing I'm ever going to say is that I want to be funny, please. So, I mean, you know, no one finds me funny, especially not my own children. That's hilarious. Well, that's the meta funny. That's the meta funny answer. I want to be more funny is funny. Well, all, all three of us will work on that together. Okay, we can do it with straight faces. Exactly. Um, and take improv classes. What's the one thing that continues to lead to your growth uh, as a leader that others might be able to replicate? And I think I, I think I want to also put a little spin on that question to say, I didn't ask it earlier with the book, but if you could also combine that with a thought about how we can get teachers more leadership, like more understanding of how to lead and that they can lead from their seat. I think the thing I'm always looking for is for more follow through so that when you pick something up, you don't drop it. Um, in a lot of school spaces, it's like the school year starts and we have an initiative, we have a theme, we're gonna start it, we're gonna do it. And everyone's really psyched. And by everyone, I usually mean a select group of people uh, for a few weeks. And then it falls by the wayside as, as the work of the school year kicks in. And it's really, really hard to get people excited. So for me, what I'm always looking for is, are you really listening to what people need and are you following through? So. If, if you say to someone, how do you feel about something? And they tell you, well, it could be better because this, are you actually going through and doing that? Or are you just letting it fall into a feedback hole somewhere? Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that, that teachers don't feel a lot of the time, like they wanna participate in what people do to try to improve schools is that they don't think that anyone's listening to them. They don't see evidence of that. So we have to increase the evidence um, and, and, and work on that in a variety of ways. I think if we could do that, then it would be a lot better for everyone. Um, you would have a totally different mindset coming out of a school, one of where everyone can do something together and, and where you see the purpose of, of, of what's happening. It's not just, oh, let's try this because let's have a day for discourse. Everyone's going, why? Why are we doing that? And if you try to challenge it, you're seen as being difficult instead of inquiring so it's a lot of perspective shift that we need to go through that's what i would like to see it's a great point miriam um just had this conversation with a few other educators about too often we present what we're going to do and ask input on what we're going to do when actually that's a little too far down the road the input should actually come further or what should have came before us presenting that part and bring them in very early on and present either the problem or even the initiative that we're now have to grapple with. Like say we don't have control over it as edu leaders, we have to push it out. Let them know that. Let them know, let them be a part of that. Um, but I have found too often that we kind of figure out, hey, we're going to go this point, like we're going to increase uh, a discourse. We're going to start doing that. Come in and they're thinking, how do we even end up here? And yet we should rewind a little bit further and get them on that front end sooner 
And then they would feel far more valuable and maybe even save us a lot of time because they're like, look, that's a good idea, but this might even be a, a better way to approach it. Well, right. And it could be that you have 20 teachers in your school who are really good at whatever strategy you're trying to implement. And they could be training other staff members or they could be finding ways to spread the joy and the knowledge and you've never tapped into it. And so one thing that I think is really important, and I do this with, with our district leaders or for anybody that I meet with or do a conference session with, something called feedback on feedback, which is at the end of the session, you do ask for feedback like everyone does, but the next time you meet, here's what you said, here's what changed, here's what can't change, but here's why. And you're just coming back to it, like for a staff meeting every single month or however much time you do it so that people understand that you're listening and what's changing as a result. Yeah, no doubt. That, that is a, that's a whole nother show. Right there. And that is near and dear to um, our hearts on outcomes. Like, is what we're doing really making a difference? Miriam, what's one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore? I used to think that people who went into leadership, did it because they wanted to leave the classroom. And I learned that it was about wanting to have a bigger impact on helping people that you care so much about on a bigger scale. And I also learned that when we get angry at people that we work with, we're not understanding that we're all there for the same reason, which is to help kids grow. And that when you just step back and try to figure it out, you see all these points of connection. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to land too, because it's, well, first it's super wise. Um, and our listeners will, will love that because it builds the connection between all of us in a school, especially where there may be some us versus them mentality and it brings that positive intent first. We are all here for the same reason. And those of us who aren't in the classroom, the, the vast majority of the people who aren't in the classroom just wanna support the people who are, just wanna support the people who are. So Miriam, this has been awesome. Um, great to hear about your book and how leaders can connect to it. Is there anything that we didn't ask or anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners, even a request, anything as a final thought? I think the request that I always have is, and it's one that I, I struggle with, so it's my area for growth too, is just try to, to talk less and listen more. Um, I think we would have a much better experience with everyone we worked with if we could remember that. And, you know, not to surround ourselves with people who agree with us, just because we think it makes life easier, because in the long run, it makes everything harder. There you have it, folks. Talk less, listen more. It's been a great show, another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog, theschoolhouse302.com, for blog posts, podcasts, books to read, video blogs, and more always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed hanging out with us and our special guest, Miriam Plotinsky. Miriam, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me.
Hey leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.